Welcome to another episode of Talking Payroll. My name is Tracy Angwin. In this episode, I speak with Athena Colmeyer, Managing Partner of Workplace Law, which is a specialist law firm focused on providing advice to employers in all aspects of employment law and workplace relations. Athena has worked for many of Australian Payroll Association's clients to provide legal support and also supports APA with our employment arrangements. I've known Athena for many years and I must say she has some of the most hilarious workplace stories, most of which she actually can't talk about on this podcast. But even without them, I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat I have with Athena. Athena, welcome to the Talking Payroll podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Tracy. I'm very excited to be here. Excited to have you. But before we get into anything payroll or employment law related, I have to wish you a very happy 15th birthday. I know. I, um, I'm sort of a bit concerned that that means that I've been working here for 15 years and that makes me slightly old. But um, as I said in my LinkedIn post, time does fly when you're having fun. Exactly. And I might say that um, you're not actually 15, but your firm Workplace Law turned 15 this week. So uh, just in case anyone was going to put their employment matters in the hands of a 15-year-old. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And the the, the first question I normally ask my guests is how they got into the payroll industry. And you're not technically in the payroll industry, but you do have to deal with a lot of the outcomes of the payroll industry, if you like. So I'll ask you instead, um, what drew you to be being a specialist in employment law? Look, it was um, it was a sort of a natural transition. I um, found myself out of university thinking that I wanted to be a property lawyer um, and promptly went and got a job in property and then uh, realised that it was about the most boring job that I <laughs> could possibly imagine. So um, not knowing really what else to do, I took the first job that was offered to me in the city in a litigation firm um, and wound up working for um, uh, insurers uh, dealing with um, dust diseases claims and other sort of major workers' comp style litigation. Um, And I really enjoyed that despite the fairly gruesome nature of some of it and the very sad consequences, obviously, of dust diseases matters. Um, and from there, I just sort of uh, transitioned really into a work health safety law role. Um, and that really does go hand in hand with employment law. So um, a few years after I started as a lawyer, I found myself fully fledged as an employment lawyer dealing with um, work health safety and everything else employment. And over the years, it's become more employment and less work health safety as employers get better at work health safety and they don't need me as much. And possibly get worse at employment. Well, look, it's, you know, I'm very sympathetic to employers and that's why our firm is set up to support only employers because if we don't have employers, then we're not going to have any employment in Australia and then we're going to have big problems. Um, But it's such an unnecessarily complex system um, and there are so many permutations and combinations um, within just a simple employment environment that um, we have made it our mission to try and um, assist employers to navigate this unnecessarily complex thing that they have to deal with when they're employing employees in Australia. And I must say, you do it um, very well. I'm, I've, uh, I'm a friend and a client, <laughs> so uh, you have helped me out in, in, in a couple of matters and, and with contracts and things. And you know, even this is a thing that uh, amazes me. It's as soon as you employ someone, uh, you are 
you know, subject to the same rules and regulations as BHP and the Commonwealth Bank. So mm-hmm. yeah, all employers just have to just have to get it right. And if they don't get it right, they need to get advice to get it right. Yep, I think that's um, wise words. And unfortunately for um, many businesses, it, that advice comes too late because they find themselves in trouble and then trying to fix it after the event rather than getting onto the front foot when they're setting up. Yeah, right. I mean, you must see you must see a heap of payroll stuff ups that result from all sorts of things that then res- require your legal expertise. Mm. In your experience, how much of this has got to do with the reliance on a payroll system that's been set up incorrectly, or like, or or is it a training issue? Mm-hmm. Where are these mistakes? Where, where are these issues coming from? Well, look, I, I think it's a good place to start at the beginning, which is you know the reliance on a payroll system. Um, you know, I think people buy a system out of a box that says that it will solve all of their problems. Um, and of course, uh, you know, payroll systems are a bit like lawyers um, and it's we operate in a garbage in, garbage out environment. So if you don't give us proper instructions, we don't give you proper advice. And it's the same with a payroll system. If you don't set it up correctly and tell it that your employees are not actually maybe working 38 hours a week, it might be a not-for-profit and you might be working 35. But if you don't tell the payroll system that, then you're going to produce an incorrect result and it's going to cause problems for you down the track. So, you know, initial setup is so important and um, I've mentioned to you before that I think the vendors need to take a little bit more ownership of trying to assist um, maybe in a more proactive way or at least you know, maybe covering their bottoms a bit better by saying, um, you will need to set this up and we will help you in so far as we can, but only you know how you employ people. So we need your data from you about award terms and conditions or enterprise agreement terms and conditions or your unique hours of work or your unique arrangements in relation to time off in lieu. Um, And they must be correctly configured within this system in order for it to do all the things that it says it does on the the back of the box. it's, you know, inevitably there's going to be underpayments or some sort of other claim that arises and, you know, six years of back pay for anything that's been incorrectly configured from day one is a nightmare. It's ugly. And, I mean, even if the vendors don't feel that they are qualified or um, or able to, to give that advice, perhaps at least they should be s- suggesting to their new clients that they go find the advice mm-hmm. to make sure they're doing the interpretations correctly. Yep, definitely. Um, and... You know, even if um, you might be a big employer with a really sophisticated HR team, but if they're not working together with payroll to make sure that payroll know what the terms and conditions are that they're offering, then, you know, there's going to be a lack of cohesion there within your own organisation about what terms and conditions should be plugged in. So it really needs, and I know that it's often done in a rush and it's sort of like, oh, we need to do it by 1 July or, you know, it, it must be done because the business is being sold in three weeks' time. Well, these things unfortunately take time to get right um, and they do require attention. It's not just sort of like hit the green button and it's going to go and magically be okay. Um, It requires time and consideration and dedication from the whole of the workplace um, and vendors, you know, I know that they're often under pressure too to deliver something that works by the D date but if they're not doing what they should be doing to support the employer to set it up correctly, um, I would suspect that they might have cranky people at some point saying, hey, you told us on the box that we could rely on your product. Um, 
and we actually can't because it's not calculating something correctly um, or it's, you know, you didn't tell us at the start that we should go get our own legal advice about how to make sure that um, long service leave accrues in the right way for South Australia. Um, so, you know, you, you told us it would work and now it's not working and now we're very cranky with you. Um, so, uh, yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple of things on that. The... the um we see a lot of, of stories in the paper, you know, the, the press love a good payroll bad news story. So we see a lot in the paper and particularly the last last ones we've seen where it's been quite useful for the employer to blame the software. We had old systems, we had, you know, old technology. But the reality is at some point someone set those up, like a human set those up. Some human made that decision to, to do those things. And the reality is, is that sometimes, like you say, if you go back six or seven years, um, you know, it's, it's just that there hasn't been, no one's been checking it for that long. Correct. Um, and the other, and the other thing, as you say, that the, the Leave. I mean, I'm. I. So there's. So there's that, which I do think is perhaps not necessarily the payroll vendor's uh, fault or responsibility, although they could do a lot proactively to avoid it. But one thing that does concern me from a vendor point of view is things like you mentioned, long service leave, because I'm yet to find. And, and I know that if payroll vendors are listening to this, they will be screaming down the, you know, <laughs> down the podcast at me. But I'm yet to find a, uh, a payroll system that correctly accrues, manages and pays long service leave. Mm. It's, it's very difficult. And, you know, it was sort of a, uh, a massive disappointment when the National Employment Standards were introduced under the Fair Work Act in um, the beginning of 2010 because we got a national system for annual leave, we got a national system for sick leave or personal carers leave, um, but long service leave was sort of like, and you can just keep doing what you were doing before. So we still have a patchwork quilt of if you used to be covered by a federal award, an old federal award, remember those, um, mm -hmm. that made provision for long service leave, then that's what you have, or it's the provisions of the, your state or territory legislation. So, And we all know the New South Wales Long Service Leave Act, for example, written in 1955, sounds like it's written in 1955, um, is a horribly confusing piece of legislation that I really detest reading every time I have to do it because... Well, that's when people went back to the England on boats, right? And it took two months. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. And that's the time frame that you're talking about that we're now trying to apply in this day and age to an important entitlement for people. Um, and it's important to get it right. But, you know, uh, I, and I have a degree of sympathy for um, the payroll vendors who are trying to write a fancy algorithm to encompass 1955 legislation that's like oh, totally square peg in a round hole but nevertheless if you say your system will do it then it probably should well look what's happened to i mean in the last 60 years what's happened to workforce flexibility mm -hmm. you know things like that the times have changed and then you get victoria that just adds a new long service leave thing just yeah. randomly and mm -hmm. what is that what is that about? Oh, the 2018 legislation. Well, it clarifies a lot of things. And, you know, I'll say this for the Victorian government. Um, cheers to you for actually modernising your long service leave legislation and making it answer questions that come up constantly. So um, New South Wales should, could take a bit of a uh, leaf out of the New South Wales government's book there and pay some attention to those sort of things that are important for employers in your state. But really, will it be will, uh, periods of parental leave? Mm. accounting towards the yeah 
That's that's the bit I think. Oh, empl- Victorian employers must be pretty cranky about that. I, I would think that they are cranky and and will be cranky for some time. Um, and you know the other thing that the Victorian legislation did in the past and still continues to do um, is deal pretty tightly with transfers of business. So it removes any sort of flexibility around we don't really want to take these employees with this long service leave. Well, now you do. Um, so you know it's. Uh, but I'll say this for it: at least it's clear as to well. There is that <laughs> as to what's in and what's out. Yeah, you might not like it, but at least there's no grey areas, right? Correct. How funny! You know, it's, I'm interested to hear what you think about this as well. Talking about grey areas, one of my biggest frustrations um, when I'm working with employers is the fact they haven't had payroll at the table when they've been negotiating EBAs. Oh. I mean. Yeah. Typically, these things are, you know, they're thrashed out over months or even years. And at the end of some sort of exhausting process of negotiation, everyone involved does high fives with each other and pops a champagne to celebrate. And then someone walks past the pay office and drops a th- mm-hmm. you know, an inch thick uh, document on payroll's desk and says, can you just make this happen? Mm. Um, so, you know, I see payroll teams having to try and implement really difficult conditions that have been, uh, you know, been negotiated in a payroll environment that they might even have to be managed outside of a system because they mm-hmm. weren't the payroll wasn't actually involved when the when those calculations were negotiated. Um, it can yep. affect you know all sorts of manual spreadsheets and things. I mean, what do you think about having payroll involved with with, with EBA negotiations? Look, I think they're um, an essential part of the bargaining team because if you know um, HR or the local management team are off on a tangent negotiating something that simply will not work within the payroll system or which is impossible to account for in the time and attendance system, um, then, you know, you're promising something to the staff or the union that's just not going to work. And how do you think that's going to turn out in the long run? That's not going to look good and nobody is going to be happy. Um, So I think, you know, even if uh, payroll, and I can understand why they would not want to sit at the bargaining table, um, they should nevertheless be um, deeply involved in the planning um, because every enterprise agreement should have a plan as to what you're going to offer and where it's going to go and how much it's going to cost you. Um, And that's the other thing that I often find uh, that employers um, have agreed to certain sets of terms and conditions and then when it's put through the payroll system and they work out exactly how much it's costing, they all hit the floor because they haven't realised that what they've committed to is actually going to cost them a bomb by the time the implementation comes through. So something like, yeah, 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 you know, you can have your birthday off every second year. Um, if you, and I'm using a silly example, if you put it through the payroll system and work out that it's going to cost you $100,000 for all of your staff in New South Wales, then maybe that's something that you wouldn't have agreed to at the time. But, <laughs> that's right. So costings and practical realities of how things are going to work um, are very important to, to make sure that payroll is across it, can do it, can deliver it on time. Um, because, you know, sometimes that three-inch think enterprise agreement is required to be implemented within 14 days. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. That's that's the crazy bit. That is mad. I mean, on, on the client side, you know, many employers get themselves into trouble from a payroll perspective by making all sorts of assumptions that things are correct when they're not. Mm. I guess a little bit likes the setup of the payroll system. Mm. And from... Um, 
from my experience, it, it, resu- it results in just underestimating. Well, it comes from just underestimating the knowledge that the staff need to run a compliant and efficient payroll function. Yeah. Why is it that do you think employers underestimate the complexity of payroll? Look, I, th- I think that there's a lot of employers out there who still see um, payroll and indeed to a degree, human resources, um, although they've been sort of knocking at the door for a lot longer than the payroll mm-hmm. community has in terms of getting a seat at the table and getting a voice, you know, in relation to big decision-making with their organisations. Um, and it's something that I know you're doing really well, Tracy, with APA and actually having the first ever qualification for payroll. Like, who would have thought that, you know, there was, yeah, there was not one? Uh, it still boggles my mind that, you know, it took somebody like you to have to come along and make one. Um, but I, th- I think that probably that lack of, you know, quote unquote, a professional qualification um, has meant that payroll get treated like they're just doing data entry. Um, and it's far, far, I don't need to tell you or the listeners, it's far, mm-hmm. far more than that. And it's so important to get it right. And it's so important to get the right people with the right training and the right understanding, you know, operating that system so it will deliver a compliant, correct, um, cost-effective outcome for the employer. Um, you know, you can't just stick anybody in there and say, okay, here's MYOB, off you go. It's not going to work well, that way. And that's the thing, you know, we, we, see, we do quite a lot of payroll audits in, payroll compliance audits Um, and you know a lot of people think that because they've had you know an auditor come in they've kind of had a big four auditor come in and audit their payroll everything should be right but you know we never find or rarely would we find that there's a you know there's a tax calculation issue it's always seems to be the big problems that we see are problems that happen before the the data even gets to the payroll. So it's really in those award interpretation. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know it does it has the the modern award caught up for some reason with the EBA and now they're not com- yep. you know they're not actually um, delivering to the minimum you know standards that they should be. Yep. So do you see many clients you know proactively checking this or do they sort of just assume that once they've got it set up it'll be okay? Look, I think uh, set and forget is a massive problem. It is. Uh, like recently we've had a client who's been challenged um, by an employer about the right way I mean and we know that accrual of sick leave is a big issue but aside from that the right way for um, annual leave to be accrued because the Fair Work Ombudsman sort of unhelpfully on their work on their website says um, annual leave should be accrued to I think it's 10 decimal places for every hour that someone works well I don't know how many payroll systems do it that way but you know the entitlement under the act is four weeks accruing progressively throughout the year so whenever you like really hourly daily monthly whatever suits you Mm -hmm. Um, and as long as it adds up to four weeks at the end of 12 months well that's compliant right well the FWO is gone a little bit overboard, I would respectfully suggest by saying it must accrue to 10 decimal places every hour. Um, but the, uh, our client had, um, uh, a, I think it was 2.92. So they had a two decimal places accrual system in place, which when you play it out actually works out to be 3.9 uh, weeks, not four. So that's an underpayment. And that's just because they've never since they um, set it up in the first place and they took that number from the old payroll system when they transitioned mm-hmm. to a new payroll system and they didn't even think about it. Oh, yeah, that's fine. Well, it's not actually fine. It's not sufficient to accrue to four weeks and four weeks is the minimum. So I was setting it and forgetting it and thinking that it's all going to be right and don't worry about it is a terrible idea. Um, and, you know, 
I don't think it has to be every year, but it should be with regularity. Um, uh, any organisation should be having a look at their employment contracts and making sure that they're still fit for purpose um, and making sure that my payroll system, whether that's by an audit by an external organisation who knows what they're doing, um, like you guys, not just a big four audit that gets done every year and becomes in my experience anyway, a little bit of a tick and flick exercise, but somebody who knows what they're looking for can sit down with your enterprise agreement and go, oh, did you know that two years ago you agreed that overtime was going to accrue um, uh, at one and a half um, times for the first two hours and then double time thereafter, whereas in the past it was three? So, you know, if you haven't updated your system to reflect that overtime is now double time after three hours, then you've got years of underpayment there just because you've not updated your system. I know it's funny, isn't it? About um, even even for me, my experience. I mean, you wrote our original employment contract, and I just kept employing people with mm. it, and I thought that was fine. And then I can't remember what it was, but I got you to check one. Um, mm. So I perhaps employed someone on a slightly different ar- arrangement, and I said, "Can you just have a look over this?" And you were you were like, "Well, this this contract doesn't work for that person." And I was horrified to think, "Well, <laughs> you know, of course it does. It's an employment contract, <laughs> but you know, it's the devil's in the detail, right?" And um, yep. You know, and that, and, and that saved me from potentially a lot of bother down the track. So um, we've just got to be always always revisiting in a sort of a continuous improvement mindset of these things. I think that's right. Well, you know, if you were operating machinery, you, you wouldn't let it go without a service for five years. That's right, exactly. It's it's interesting because um, another I guess another part of what I've seen you do I mean I, I I laugh because you I used to say to you hey we should like go and have dinner on a Friday night or something and you used to say to me no no Tracy if there's someone's going to do something stupid in the workplace it's always going to be four o'clock on a Friday afternoon mm-hmm. <laughs> and, it, and it ultimately always comes down to you know culture the culture of that workplace someone does something stupid and I think culture is really you know a huge part of both wider business but also in the payroll department Mm. and you know often often payroll can report to finance sometimes we report to HR but there's always this sort of triangular relationship and that can work out really well but sometimes there are challenges or even friction between those parties have you seen different cultures in different payroll environments uh, that are either good or bad? And, and what do you think the most important thing is when fostering a healthy payroll culture? Look, I think a healthy payroll culture... Um, uh, well, let me say, th- say it this way. Payroll is always in a difficult position in any organisation because it is part of the thin blue compliance line. And the organisation may not think that it is. It may think it's just an administrative function. But payroll is part of the guardian at the gate to make sure that compliance is being properly executed by the company. Um, and now in this day and age of, you know, accessorial liability and people who are involved in contraventions like paying people wrong, you know, are all, you know, individually exposed, um, I know that payroll people take this stuff very, very seriously and it often results in potentially butting heads with someone who they report to who may not think it's as serious as payroll is making it out to be. Um, It is, in fact, that serious um, and it, you know, becomes a challenge for payroll people who are often, you know, buried in the numbers and are very, very good with systems and operations and compliance to actually be able to articulate in a way that will um, um, 
get the support of the organisation for change um, to get to the table and to persuade the powers that be within your organisation that you need to be doing something differently or you have a compliance problem and it needs to be fixed um, or, you know, you've uh, detected this problem and it needs to be resolved because it's got the potential to cost you lots of money down the track. So that um, um, ability to influence about compliance, I think now is a critical skill for payroll. Um, you know, the, the days of a payroll person sitting there and thinking, oh, I'm just paid to run the numbers, um, are certainly long gone. Um, and, you know, it's in your part of your role as guardian of the gate, I think it's important that you be able to, um, you know, communicate your concerns in a way that's actually not going to wind you up in trouble or having big arguments or throwing staplers at each other at four o'clock on a Friday. Um, it just, you know, really needs to, to happen in a positive way. And, and that's a challenge. Like anytime anybody has to give anybody bad news or ask for, a, you know, variation of something that you've been doing for a long time or, um, you know, becomes a challenge. But yeah, the, the poor payroll cultures are the ones who, in my experience, just sit there and go, well, I'm just doing what I'm told and I'm not going to actually raise my hand and say something's wrong. I think that's a real abdication of responsibility by payroll. You you are all better than that and you know what is right and wrong and you should be raising your hand and saying so to the organisation. Um, and the other ones are the ones who just uh, are incapable of communicating what they need in anything other than an aggressive way which is going to result in them being ignored. So those are the two things that I think are important for payroll um, in relation to improving their culture or their status um, in the cultural yeah. balance within the organisation. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, on the other hand, I've heard you tell some stories w without naming names, of course, <laughs> in a very confidential environment. You are a lawyer. and uh, um, But I've, I've heard some stories of, of uh, you know, work that you've done in the past where there's been less than suitable payroll folk uh, doing payroll that's have given their employers huge headaches. Um, and just because they're either they're willfully or perhaps will, they're either willfully incompetent or they're just incompetent. Mm. Um, and, and, and I'm sure that most of those examples are no longer in the payroll industry. But in, in terms of, you know, your clients who are mainly HR um, departments, I guess, or, or, yep. or, or business owners, what, what do you think, based on what their needs are, what do you think the most important characteristics of a payroll professional is? Look, I think, um, I mean, uh, well, it should, should go without saying that a payroll professional should be competent. They should know what they're doing. Um, and certainly we have had issues with, you know, um, people who have been in payroll for a long time um, setting up a system across a complex environment with multiple different awards but saying, oh, no, you know, over time we'll just accrue at this rate for everyone. Well, it, it didn't accrue for this rate for everyone. It was a massive problem. But, you know, they purported to be a professional and purported to be able to set up a system um, and they clearly couldn't. So being competent is, you know, uh, the first thing um, and it should go without saying you shouldn't be trying if you're not competent. Um, mm. and, and the other thing is, of course, to, you know, make sure uh, and, you know, if I was a payroll person starting in a new payroll environment, the first thing I would do is do my best to do my own sanity check and audit and make sure that the system that I was going to be working with was fit for its purpose. So if it was a terrible old, you know, I have to write it on a bit of paper and then upload it, you know, manually and just, you know, it, that may result in either 
I can't do this job, but I'm out and I'm going to find somewhere better for me. Um, or, you know, a direct conversation with the business saying, okay, well, if you want me to do a proper payroll job, then you need to give me proper tools to do that. And that means that I might need a better system um, than what I have right now in order to make this sort of compliant. Um, so, those are sort of the first things that I would think about doing from a payroll point of view. So competence, you know, ability to actually have the right tools to do the job to the standard that's required, I think are, you know, the, the two key things that I would start with. Yes, great advice. Look, I mean, you've you have been. Uh, we've, I've known you a long time, and and you've helped me get through some of my own sticky employment situations, and certainly um, helped me avoid them as well with the with the types of uh, contracts and and assistance that you you provide at Workplace Law. Um, so thank you for that. And, Always, a and thank you for being. <laughs> Because I'm not a difficult client, Mark. You No, you aren't. And you always approach everything with, you know, the right attitude, which is you take advice and you have a um, your sense of humour firmly intact despite the difficulties of the situation. <laughs> Even if I don't like Even it, I take it. Even if you don't like it, you take it. <laughs> But um, it's it's been. I mean, I certainly couldn't recommend your you and your team highly enough. Oh, thank you. Uh, highly enough. So um, you know, thanks for being uh, on on the podcast. But but how if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Look, our offices are based here in Sydney. Um, our website is www.workplacelaw.com.au. Um, and otherwise, you can always reach us by email at sydney at workplacelaw.com.au. Easy. Well, thanks again for being on the podcast and I look forward to, um, well, it's almost four o'clock on a Friday, so you, you're probably <laughs> going to have a late night, And uh, but I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks, Tracy. Appreciate it. Hi, this is Tracy. I hope you enjoyed that last episode of Talking Payroll. If you've got any comments or questions, please email them to us at podcast at ostpayroll.com.au. And look, if there's anyone that you'd love to hear on this podcast or someone that you think that I just have to interview, and maybe that's even you, uh, please let us know by emailing podcast at austpayroll.com.au. That's podcast at austpayroll.com.au. I'm really looking forward to having you listen again next time I'm talking payroll. Payroll.